Hello, my name is Dama Mega, and welcome to this fourth podcast by Windhorse Publications. Um, and I'm here today after a really wonderful interview with Nagapriya, who's the author of a book that we'll be publishing in September. The book is called The Promise of a Sacred World, Shunran's Teaching of Other Power. What I wanted to do today was find out a little bit more about Nagapriya, the person, and his own spiritual life, his practice, his engagement with Buddhism, and what interests him in Shinran and the possibility of an existential encounter with something beyond himself. So I hope you enjoy this podcast interview as much as I did. Hello, Nagapriya. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Um, where are you, Nagapriya? Tell me a little bit about your situation. Okay, so uh, you find me today in Cuernavaca in Mexico, um, in the state of Morelos, uh, which is just south of Mexico City. Uh, and I've been living here for nine years, um, mostly uh, setting up and running the Cuernavaca Buddhist Center. Uh, but after that, getting involved in, in various other things uh, in terms of our community in Latin America. Great. So you're originally English, I take it? Uh, yeah, I, I've decided that I've actually gone forth from being English. So although I still have a British passport, I no longer consider myself to be English. <laughs> I was Great. I was finding that I was finding that constantly conceptualizing myself as an English person was starting to make me feel a bit uh, uncomfortable and slightly alienated from myself because uh, there are certain kind of projections or stereotypes about what English people are like, uh, which uh, Latin Americans often have, actually. Uh, and I just uh, felt increasingly distant from that narrative of what it means to be uh, an English or a British person that, that yeah, it, it, it's not so useful to me anymore. Mm. And presumably you speak Spanish fluently and that's how you're communicating with everyone there? Uh, yeah, I mean, this, uh, I, I've always struggled with this idea of fluency and what that might mean. Sometimes I, I feel that I'm not particularly fluent in English, particularly these days. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I can make myself understood and generally people understand what I'm saying. So I think probably in, in terms of what the world normally thinks of as, as fluency, I, I'm, I'm fairly fluent. Yeah. It's quite an interesting process, actually, uh, learning and, uh, and living in a culture where you're constantly immersed in, in a language that's not your first language. Uh, at least it's been interesting for me because it involves a whole shift of identity, as I was touching on before. Uh, and you start to conceive of who you are in, in quite a different way uh, than you did previously. You can even think different thoughts as well, which is quite interesting. I'm enjoying your answers to these introductory questions. Um, and what I'm enjoying about it is your specificity and your clarity and your wish to be precise about what you're saying. Because um, it's actually something I really enjoyed when you were working in writing the book and we were going through it and getting ready for publication. Uh, it's very interesting that your mind works in that way, very, very careful and very precise and uh, very clear. Thank you. I suppose uh, just following on a little bit from what I was saying about language, uh, I mean, as Buddhists, we're putting ourselves in relationship to a tradition that is quite uh, historically and culturally distant from us and even linguistically distant. 
uh, obviously often we're relying on translation uh, to understand the ideas. But what I'm driving at is it's another way of uh, having a new sense of who we are because we're, uh, we're encountering ways of thinking, we're encountering cultural history that's quite distant from the cultural history that we grew up with. And uh, for that reason, I think it's, uh, well, I find it really exciting to engage with, uh, you know, Buddhist ideas, Buddhist history, Buddhist practices. Hmm. It occurs to me that I haven't even told the listeners what your book is or what it's about. <laughs> so the book is called, well, why don't you tell us what the book is called? Uh, the book is called uh, The Promise of a Sacred World, Shinran's Teaching of Other Power. Hmm. So that's certainly um, uh, an encounter with uh, tradition and a language and perhaps also a form of teaching and practice that um, is quite literally foreign to what you or I might have grown up with. I, I wonder, um, there's this lovely piece in the book that I want to draw on where you talk about who you were and sort of where you were in your life at the time that you encountered Shinran and Shinran's teachings. I wonder if you could just say something about that. Um, yeah, I can. It's actually quite sensitive. Um, and uh, I mean, I was quite a young person when I first came across Buddhism, uh, about 19, really. Um, and, you know, what, one of the first messages that I heard that really inspired me was that I can change. Um, and when I heard that, I thought, oh, fantastic, because I don't want to carry on being like I am right now. I'm not enjoying this. You know, in fact, I was I was suffering a lot. Uh, so that was a very inspiring initial message, if you like, to get from uh, Buddhism. And uh, then I got heavily involved in a Tree Ratna Buddhist Center called the Leeds Buddhist Center in, in Yorkshire, England, where, where I was studying uh, philosophy at the time. Uh, and yeah, I really just dived right into it all. Uh, and uh, after a few years, uh, was ordained into the Tri Ratna Buddhist order uh, on a four month retreat in Spain. And I was commenting to someone recently that I can remember uh, walking out of the valley at Gukiloka, the, the place is called Gukiloka, where I was ordained, and I felt invincible. I felt like nothing was going to impede my progress towards enlightenment. Nothing was going to impede my uh, my desire to share the Dharma everywhere and everywhere. I, I was so inspired, if you like, and I had so much energy. Um, and I started to do that, uh, that kind of work. Uh, uh, by that time, I'd moved to, to Manchester in England. And I started working full-time uh, for our center there, as a, I think I was the manager and, and one of the teachers there, I was about 23 at this point, um, uh, and uh, and lots of things went went really really well, uh, and the, the center grew a lot, and we moved to a much bigger place, which is the current uh, Manchester Buddhist Center. Um, and well, some years later, I found myself um, in a in a retreat center, uh, a study retreat center where. I was either by now the, the chair of that or close to becoming the chair. Uh, but I, there was also some, so in a way you could argue that things were going quite well, but actually they, they weren't going well uh, uh, internally. And I had some kind of, uh, a really, really big kind of energy collapse, but I think it wasn't just that. It was like an existential collapse where I kind of realized that I couldn't, 
do it really that I couldn't get any further. Um, uh, I was trapped in myself. Um, I didn't think that I could ever get enlightened. It just seemed so impossibly distant and all the efforts that I was making were just making it worse. They were, they weren't actually taking me any further. Um, so that's the kind of existential, um, condition that I found myself in, uh, when I first, uh, came across Shinran's teachings. Wow, it's a strong, it's a strong portrait, and and perhaps, I mean, it's your your story and your specific life of this like of great deal of enthusiasm and commitment and effort, and then sort of running out of steam or or hitting a barrier. Um, uh, I, you know. I, I know I know a number of people who might tell a different story. Shinran, Shinran may not have been the thing that they encountered that helped them to shift that, but but um, the idea of uh, failing in one's efforts towards enlightenment is is probably reasonably common for people who've been practicing or at least losing momentum. Well, I think so. I mean, I suppose everyone has a, a different personality and a, a different psychological makeup, but. Certainly, a lot of my friends uh, have resonated with uh, with what's happened to me, and I, I noticed that many of my friends have gone through similar things. Uh, maybe their way of talking about that, or maybe their way out of that, has been uh, somewhat different. But I think I think there's almost something inevitable, really, in the process of um, deeply engaging with uh, the Dharma, deeply engaging with what awakening means. I think it's inevitable that at some point one's really going to have some very, very deep awakenings to one's own limitations and, and the obstacles that are there. Uh, I, I think uh, I think quite often what can happen is when we first come across uh, Buddhism or the Dharma, we're looking for some kind of escape from ourselves, really. We're looking for some kind of solution uh, that is going to make everything okay, you know, uh, uh, and everything's going to be happily ever after. Uh, and, uh, and so we, we, we maybe start with that assumption and proceed on that assumption. And it seems as though it's working out. Uh, but I think as we start to, to practice more deeply, was our deeper habits, our deeper patterns start to reveal themselves a lot more tenaciously, if you like, than before. Uh, and that's when we begin to get stuck. And, and some people obviously just lose heart and they just abandon practice altogether. That That's very common. We know that. Uh, or other people uh, try to ignore it. That's another option. Uh, just try and pretend that it's not happening. They go into some kind of spiritual bypassing, uh, to use that term. Uh, and others, well, uh, uh, try to battle their way through it, if you like. Um, uh, and maybe others recognize that, and this is my, maybe where Shinran comes in, that part of the part of a, a more mature life in the Dharma is coming to terms with what it means to be a limited human being, um, that we're not invincible, uh, to go back to my earlier term, that I'm not invincible. Mm so i I'm aware that some people who are listening to this podcast may not be very familiar with even who Shinran was or or what he stands for in shorthand in this discussion. so maybe you could you just introduce him a little bit? 
I will. I mean, that's uh, uh, Dama Mega. That's a very big question as well, because in a way, we're walking straight into late 12th century, early 13th century Japan. Uh, so by this point, um, Buddhism as a tradition has got like 1800 years behind it, you know, uh, or a bit less than that, but, um, uh, you know, a, a long, a long time, um, of development. Uh, but anyway, uh, Shinran was living during a, a particularly phase of Japanese history, which we now know, or we now call the Kamakura period. And we now see it as a very uh, important and formative period in the history of Japan. And actually, we could say in the history of Buddhism, because a number of important Buddhist schools emerged or began to emerge during that period, including Zen. Uh, actually, Shinran was a contemporary of Dogen, uh, who is much, much better known. Uh, Dogen, who's considered the founder of Soto Zen. Uh, we don't believe that they knew each other. But they were both trained as Tendai monks. So Tendai uh, was one of the main monastic traditions there in Japan at that time. And they've got, and they still do, have their main center on a mountain just outside Kyoto, which is called Mount Hye. Uh, and that's where Shinran was. He, he became uh, a Tendai monk when he was, I think, nine or ten, very young guy. This was quite common in those days. And he trained in the Tendai tradition, which is um, quite a, a rich tradition, really, um, and involves a lot of study, a lot of different practices. Um, and he, he, he practiced there for nearly 20 years he, on, on, on Mount Hye. And it, we, we don't really know because we don't have detailed autobiographical materials but we do have some some of his comments we do have some materials that indicate what was going on for him and i think in general terms we could say that he hit a kind of existential crisis along the lines of what i was talking about earlier and realized that he wasn't getting anywhere uh, basically um, so he, he was committed to the tendai regime all of the practice that he was uh, supposed to do and he was noticing that after 20 years or so, he didn't really feel that anything much had changed uh, inside himself. So he had a kind of existential crisis that made him look for another form of practice, another way of practicing. And he basically went down the mountain and sought out um, a teacher called Honin, um, who was living in Kyoto, who was also a Tendai monk as well, who'd abandoned uh, abandoned the, the, the main Tendai uh, center, the main Tendai temple. Uh, and Honen uh, was teaching um, a, a quite a simple practice, you could argue, uh, as opposed to the very complex practices that, that Tendai was teaching. And the basic practice was to, uh, to recite the name of uh, Amida Buddha, Amitabha Buddha, uh, Namo Amida Butsu, um, which means homage to Amida Buddha. Uh, and that is now widely known as the Nimbutsu. Um, so it's a way of, if, if you like, invoking the Buddha, invoking enlightenment in a, in a very simple and straightforward way. Uh, and that's what Honen was teaching. And that's what Shinran learnt. And that was the key to his spiritual awakening, if we can call it that. That's a, that's a really helpful and, uh, and, and sort of clear locating of Shinran in his, 
historical context, but also um, it's interesting, the parallels, isn't it? You're saying you, you kind of got to a point where you'd sort of run out of steam or you'd hit a wall, or as you say, you'd encountered the, the materials that hadn't yet been transformed by other kinds of practice. And then how, how did you encounter Shinran? How did you know to pick up Shinran um, well, I, I didn't. Um, I, I suppose I could say a couple of things. So in the in the early 90s, uh, our teacher, uh, Sangharakshita, decided to try to create or decided to create a kind of lineage model uh, for Tree Ratna, uh, which is called a refuge tree. Um, and this is based on a Tibetan idea. Um, so within the Tibetan tradition, each of the individual schools has a refuge tree, uh, which... Um, Kind of illustrates their lineage so it shows their main teachers and all of the the figures either historical or archetypal that are associated uh with that tradition um and uh and sangharachita decided well it would be good if we had such a such a point of reference such a tree so he created this and um uh within that tree he names 16 historical Buddhist teachers who he considered to be particularly important, uh, perhaps because of the innovations that they introduced or because of the way that they translated Buddhism into a new cultural context. And one of those figures is Shinran. Uh, And I I knew absolutely nothing about Shinran uh, at this time. Uh, But going back to the the study centre where I was uh, living, uh, I was actually living with my friend uh, Ratnaguna, uh, and Ratnaguna had been uh, reading uh, some Shinran himself, studying a bit of Shinran, and he, he mentioned something to me about it, and I said, oh, uh, you know, why don't we study a little bit of Shinran together? Uh, so he picked up um, a short uh, text, which is called Shoshinge, uh, which is known in English as the Hymn of True Faith or the, the Hymn of True Shinjin. And we started uh, looking at that, and that was really my first encounter with Shinran's way of thinking and the whole other power model, uh, the whole other power approach to practice. And it was really quite strange, my response to it, because in one way, I didn't understand any of it. Um, In one way, it seemed quite distant and a bit odd. And in another way, it just seemed obviously true. Uh, to me. So it was quite a complex uh, response, really, that I had to it. And and I couldn't really initially explain what seemed true about it or why I thought it was true. But I think certainly at least one thing that that struck me was um, a lot of Shinran's um, writing is about trying to uh, point out uh, the limitations of self-power. So the the limitations of... um, your, your own attempts to enlighten yourself, to they're, they're kind of self-defeating, really. Uh, and I really resonated with that because that was definitely what, what I was experiencing at the time. So it, it definitely seemed truthful in terms of my own experience of what was happening. So self-power is sort of that intentional, volitional, uh, striving practice in the sense of like putting one foot in front of the other and regularly showing up on your meditation cushion and you know is that what you mean by self-power an ability to drive to oneself whatever that might mean towards enlightenment 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think probably even what self-power is, is not not necessarily uh, straightforward. Um, I, I think it's, I think I, w- I would think about self-power in relation to how we conceptualize uh, what Buddhist practice consists in. And I think part of it is to do with conceiving of enlightenment as a goal that we can achieve. Um, so if, if we think of enlightenment as a goal that we can achieve, then it becomes something that is appropriated to the ego um, uh, and actually becomes the opposite, really, uh, of Buddhist practice. Um, so that, that's sort of one initial uh, angle on, on self-power. Um, and I, I think also uh, self-power is very much about isolating the individual will and seeing it as, as separate from the rest of reality and thinking that I'm strengthening this will that I've got and this will that is mine is taking me in this direction and is leading me forward. And I think there's something essentially false about that way of thinking about what the will is. Uh, the will isn't so individually owned in that way. Um, I think what we, what we think of as our will, if, if, if we think deeply about it, is actually something that's been shaped by, well, everyone who we're concerned with, the things that we read, the things that we study, the, our family, uh, other, other Buddhists, and so on. For me, I think that's one of the reasons why in Tri Ratna we emphasize so much Sangha, because we recognize that we're not independent, we're interconnected. Um, and so if we're thinking about what we might call our will, our will is actually something that's interconnected, not something that's in, uh, independent of others. Um, so, so I suppose, you know, going back to the idea of self-power, I think it's to do with a particular way of conceptualizing who we are as human beings. And, and uh, in addition to that, conceptualizing what our relationship is uh, to enlightenment and how we would go about uh, getting there. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe in a way it's probably just a little bit literal minded. Uh, really, yeah. So, um, listening to you talk there, I'm struck by this sort of. Uh, it feels like a harmony or a dissonance or something. There's on the one hand, there's there's the uh, clearly a sort of wrong view that underpins a certain kind of uh, imagination of enlightenment and also a kind of effort and and a, and a self-understanding what dimensions of experience are identified with um, and you approaching that in quite conceptual terms and I think that's very helpful as a problem of view and consequence of view um, but I'm also struck by I see you you're, you're thinking about that <laughs> let me get to the question we can come back maybe if that's not what you were meaning I'll leave leave that to you to think about but um, I'm also struck when you were talking about encountering Shinren for the first time you were saying on one hand you didn't understand it it didn't fit into uh, the conceptualization you had or, or perhaps even the terms it it was using was strange but it moved you uh, or you had a response to it. You kept saying, um, uh, like other power, something about that uh, spoke to you. Um, I wonder if you could uh, say a little bit about what that was like for you to encounter something on slightly different terms from what you'd been thinking of before. 
Mm. Well, I mean, first of all, I was quite happy with what you said uh, about what I uh, said. Um, well, I think what I'd say about um, my encounter with Shinran, you know, I, I'd like I'd like to say that it was like a, a road to Damascus experience, and suddenly, you know, everything changed. But I, I don't think it was like that. Uh, it certainly hasn't been like that. And actually, it's been a process of sort of encountering and re-encountering Shinran over quite a long period. Um, uh, so the book that we're talking about right now was written over the last couple of years or so. And some of the events that I'm uh, describing happened over 20 years ago. Um, so the connection, if you like, with what Shinran was gesturing towards has taken a long time to emerge. Um, and... Uh, Going back to, you know, you picking up on the fact that I was saying that I had a response to something, but I, I didn't really understand it. I still think that's true. Uh, I still don't really understand it. And one of my one of my cautions, if you like, about doing the uh, the interview today is that I realized that very quickly I get to the edge of what I'm able to say. Uh, and, and we're being in relationship to something, something mysterious, if you like, that's very, very difficult to talk about. Uh, and in a way, that was the whole experience of writing the book as well. I was actually constantly in a moment of thinking, I've no idea what to say after this. You know, I've no idea what what could be the way to talk about what I'm trying to gesture towards um, right now. Um, yeah, that often I was, and and I actually, but I actually felt as well that that was always a good thing because uh, that that actually felt that I was really at the. Uh, the the creative um, edge, if you like, of of under or trying to reach out to something a bit further, um, rather than thinking that well, my my aim is to have kind of complete clarity and and domination, you know, over, over the over the topics that that I'm trying to talk about, which is definitely not not possible, or certainly not possible for me. Um, so th I, this is all really connected with Shinran because I think a lot of what Shinran is gesturing towards is that, that that really this idea that you're capable of grasping everything you know you're capable of understanding everything and you're going to get there is not really the right way to think about things uh, a lot of it really is more about letting go uh, opening up to the fact there are things beyond at least the conscious self that we can't fully grasp in ideas and words and well he, he sums a lot of that up in terms of Amitabha Amida, no? who is infinite. Um, yeah. So I wonder if it would be fruitful to go on a little uh, detour, if you like, before we come to some of the ways Shinran does find words for himself and that you've taken up um, in thinking about other ways of conceptualizing or experiencing uh, Amida, something transcendent, <laughs> um, something that can intervene in the fixedness of our ideas or a sense of self, um, and that's uh, and that's really via Christianity in a strange way, or perhaps via theology in a strange way, um, and it strikes me. Um, well, actually, before we do that, I just also want to thank you because because I know this is not easy to talk about these things. These are, these are tender questions. Um, they're sort of tender questions at the heart of, of what we're 
I mean, even here the language breaks down, doesn't it? What we're trying to do, that's not even that it's not even it. It's a tender thing in in encountering our own openness or responsiveness or or not knowing. And um, I've really enjoyed our conversations along the way about the book. And, and in a way, you're bringing a kind of vulnerability to that, you know, it, one of the things Shinran does is is kind of say like I'm a, I'm a I'm a fool, you know, or I I'm 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 not able to to wrap this all up, and I'm you know so w- what does success look like? Um, you know, it doesn't look like being invincible at all. Um, so I, yeah, I just wanted to say that I I really appreciate this thread of in your book and in the conversation as well. But you and I have something in common. We ha- we've discovered this in our first conversation about the book, is that we were both really affected by the same film as a child, as children. Um, and that was a film called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon about Francis of Assisi. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if you can say what it was about that that sort of set of references. Let's start with Francis of Assisi and keep going. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So I knew you were going to ask me about this. So I actually did a little bit of research. Um, And just to let you know, since first seeing the film, and maybe I was like 12 or 13 when I saw it, I've never seen it again. But last night I did a little bit of research to try and see if some of my memories of the film were correct. Uh, And, one of the one of the main memories, one of the things that stuck out for me uh, in the film, is a scene where the young Francis basically decides to renounce the world, uh, and he he concludes that he wants to live, uh, you know, a life following God, and he wants to completely renounce everything. So he strips all his clothes clothes off and he hands them over to his father. And that's his kind of going forth. And there's there's something about that scene. And I did I did I watched it on uh, YouTube, and my memory wasn't bad actually. It wasn't far off from from the the, the scene as it's shown. Uh, and that that really really struck me uh, that act of renunciation because it seemed to to symbolise something completely different from an ordinary way of living. Um, yeah, um, I watched a couple of other scenes of the film and and realised parts of it were a little bit romantic maybe uh, which often is the case i think when when people are trying to portray um you know religious figures but the, the other the other thing that i um i noticed watching little, little clips is that there's a there's an important scene where francis goes to see the pope uh and the pope is played by alec guinness um and and i was watching the scene and i was thinking this this church looks a bit familiar uh, and then I read the, the caption, and it's actually a cathedral in, in Palermo, in, in Sicily, which I've actually visited. Uh, and, uh, but but I'd, I'd not made that connection before. Um, and there, there's a very particular image of, uh, of Christ in that, um, in that cathedral, which is called Christ the Redeemer, um, which is, a very, uh, is not a crucified image of Christ. It's a Christ more as a, a kind of wise image. Um, anyway, that's a bit of a diversion, but yeah, that 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 image of renunciation really really struck me uh, in terms of Francis. Yeah, and I, I I wouldn't say I've done a huge amount of reading about Saint Francis over the years, but I, I read a little bit, 
And there, there's something about the, at least the image, let's say, the, the archetype of uh, Francis that really, really appeals to me. I think there's a, a real emphasis on love, for instance, in, in St. Francis, simplicity and renunciation. You know, there's something very, very sincere in all of that that is very, very appealing. The, um, I, I watched that when I was a similar age, when I was 13, and it had an enormous, it, for me, it was the first time I'd seen something that looked like a possibility of a life without hypocrisy. Um, uh, and a, and a, and a, the choice to be able to walk away from certain kinds of ways of doing things that for me just felt extremely corrupted somehow and uh, to sort of walk away and that something else was possible. But it, it occurs to me that, you know, we're part of a movement in which Sangharakshita was attempting to do some kind of translation it was so deeply, deeply embedded in a variety of strands of Asian Buddhist thinking and practice. And he was trying to synthesize it and he was trying to, to translate it into terms and idioms and metaphors that um, could be useful for, I mean, I'm not sure that we would use the word in this quite this way, but like through to the West, some other um, more... Uh, emic set of ideas or principles that that w would be recognizable and we could mobilize and his I suppose his um, he didn't very much draw on Christian images it was much more sort of literary or romantic or uh, neoplatonic figures um, but you really draw on on a certain thread of kind of almost post-Christian or late Christian theology to try and talk about um, what it is that that Amida and Amida's vow is about, because we don't have a language for that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Bante uh, Sangharashita does uh, talk about various uh, Christian uh, figures. I'm thinking of St. Jerome in particular, who was a very important figure in his own imagination. Uh, but anyway, what, what you say about me is also true. Uh, I mean, actually, in the book, I draw on quite a wide range of different uh, thinkers and, and poets and so on. That There's quite a few references to, to uh, contemporary poets. But um, what, one of the particular uh, impulses behind the book was a kind of an urge to, to affirm and declare what I would call the religious dimension of Buddhism. Um, I mean, the word religion itself is, is highly difficult, um, uh, but... Uh, but let's say uh, the urge to say that there's something uh, in Buddhism that is beyond the mundane, that's beyond uh, the known, that is maybe transcendent. Uh, and I would even say uh, something that is sacred. Um, uh, and th th these are words that resonate with me. They, they may not resonate with everyone. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so in, the, in that process of, of trying to construct a way of talking about the, the sacred dimension uh, of Buddhism, I found a resonance with quite a number of uh, 20th century, 21st century uh, European theologians and, and philosophers. Um, to give one example, um, quite a well-known theologian uh, is Paul Tillich. Uh, and Paul Tillich, uh, amongst other things, coined a phrase which which is in English is ultimate concern. So instead of talking about God, he talks about ultimate concern. And 
I found that to be a very, very resonant term for talking about what's most important in life or, you know, the, the biggest context of meaning in life, uh, which actually resonates anyway with, um, with Shinran and with Shin Buddhism, because in, in Japanese Buddhism, we have the idea of, uh, of Daiji or Ichi Daiji, uh, which is the great matter or the one great matter. The one great matter is a term that is used sometimes. And, you know, what is that one great matter? It's the ultimate meaning and value of our lives, you know, what we're here for. Um, so I, I found that, um, that in this case, Tillich was quite good at sort of opening out um, the overall existential context, if you like, of, of, of human life. Um, another another philosopher who, who was, is quite new to me, actually, um, is Jean-Luc Marion. Uh, he's a French phenomenologist, uh, but he's also a Catholic theologian. Um, and w- he, he's a very, very interesting thinker. And one of the ideas that he, uh, uh, he uses that I made use of is called uh, anamorphosis. So anamorphosis uh, is a technique that's sometimes used in painting, um, and uh, there's a very famous example of a, an anamorphic painting in the uh, in the National Gallery in London, which is called the Ambassadors by Holbein. And if you look at the picture in in the usual way, um, you see the ambassadors, but you you see this kind of white whitish grey streak across the painting, but it's not clear what it is. You can't really see clearly what it is, um, and you have to put yourself into a very particular uh, position in relationship to viewing the painting in order to be able to see, oh, it's actually a skull uh, symbolizing, you know, impermanence and death. Uh, and so uh, um, Jean-Luc Marion uses this idea of anamorphosis to communicate the idea that, um, that in order to understand anything that really is deeply significant, we have to give up the idea that we can have a kind of panoramic awareness of it, um, uh, like a bird's eye awareness uh, of it. And we have to um, adjust to what what is trying to show itself to us. Uh, so we respond, if you like. Uh, we respond rather than try to dominate. Um, and and I, I've used the idea of anamorphosis to talk about a kind of receptive awareness, a kind of reverent awareness that, that gives up the idea that we're going to fully grasp something um, uh, and, uh, and instead of that, to allow something to reveal itself uh, to us in, in our receptive state. If you like, you could think of it as a, as a metaphor for, yeah, for faith or receptivity. Yeah. So there are a couple of examples you know, of, of uh, some, of, some of the philosophers or theologians that I've used to try and articulate some of the ideas in the book. Maybe it'd be helpful at this point to, um, <laughs> I wanted to say, look headlong, head, you know, go go straight to the key question of like, what is other power? Uh, what is it that one <laughs> is receptive to or reliant on? Um, you know, even having said what you've just said about having to put yourself in a particular place to see that. Yeah. So, uh, it, so that's a very difficult question, I think, uh, to answer what other power is, because you, I, I can give a very simple answer, uh, but really 
that's um, are going to going to be a very simplistic answer, but but we can start with that anyway. Um, and I think I'd like to I'd like to preface the answer by saying that people often say that uh, Shinran's approach to Buddhism or Pure Land Buddhism is about faith, and I think it's just such a horrible distortion of what is being talked about. I, I think it's almost useless, really, as a as a as a term because of what we normally think of when we think of faith uh, we normally think of it as the as the opposite of um we think of credulity we think of the opposite of a critical faculty and so on but anyway com coming back to other power so i think we probably first of all have to say that shinran's whole vision of religious life is rooted in a myth uh, a mythic narrative which is the narrative of the uh, the path towards awakening of a great bodhisattva, um, uh, initially called Dharmakara, the bodhisattva, who then becomes uh, Amitabha. Uh, Amitabha is a, uh, a Buddha. Um, uh, depending on how you want to conceptualize uh, Amitabha, you could say he's the archetype of enlightenment, uh, or you could say that um, Amitabha is awakening actively trying to reveal itself to us um, you could think of him that way and uh, and going back to the myth uh, in the course of his um, progress towards awakening uh, Amitabha makes a series of, of vows uh, 48 vows actually um, and the vows really are essentially about making it a lot easier for us as if to become enlightened, really. Um, so if you like, he's done uh, or they have done uh, all the hard work um, and it's a lot easier for us. And, and in, at the heart of the vows is, um, the, is that Amida decides or determines to create a, a perfect environment, a pure land uh, in which all beings can be reborn uh, and will have the most favorable conditions possible uh, to become enlightened. And according to the myth, Amida has created that world, that world exists, that, that, that pure land exists, which is called Sukhavati. Uh, and he's also um, designed a specific uh, practice that enables us to be reborn there, which is, I mentioned earlier, the Nimbutsu. So simply through invoking uh, Amida's name, uh, we can apparently be born uh, in the Pure Land. Um, and we can do that because the, uh, the Nimbutsu is invested with uh, all of Amida's spiritual merit uh, rather than our spiritual merit. And so it kind of, um, it gifts to us all of his spiritual qualities. And that's what enables us to be born in the Pure Land. So that's in a way, the other power um, that we're being, uh, something is being given to us that we have not earned or we've not generated through our own spiritual efforts. Yeah, the power of another. Um, in this case, a, a cosmic Buddha who is Amitabha. I mean, so far I'm speaking mostly within the terms of the myth. Um, and I suppose one question would be, in existential terms, uh, what does other power mean? Uh, what are we talking about? And I don't think it's easy to say, but I think we could say something like, 
we're talking about a source of direction uh, that goes beyond the known self, that, that seems to come from somewhere else, that seems to erupt through us rather than be something that we've actually built or generated through our own efforts. And it's really, for that reason, something quite mysterious. Uh, it's like something emerging from uh, the depths. And uh, I suppose when we think about um, Dharmaga, you know, why did we become Buddhist? You know, why did we get involved in Buddhism? Why are we treading this Buddhist path? And one way of answering that question would be something like, well, we came across Buddhism and we liked it and we started doing it. And it's kind of true, isn't it? Uh, but I think when you investigate a bit more closely, you kind of think, well, it, it's quite mysterious, really. Um, you know, I can think of all of the friends that I was with at the time that I connected with Buddhism and they had the same opportunity and quite a few of them didn't uh, connect uh, with Buddhism in, in the same way. And, and I often find it's easier to think, well, actually, it's, it was something beyond me, really. I, I'm not necessarily saying apart from me, but beyond me as I know myself, something that was uh, emerging through me, if you like, something that's beyond what I, at least what I knew at that time, and, and I think beyond what I still know now, um, a kind of an impulse that in some way doesn't belong to me or at least can't be appropriated by my ordinary will. Well, these, this is at least one of the ways that I'm talking about what other power means. It's it's um, it's both subtle and compelling. I mean, I, you, I, um, I haven't. Uh, it's funny, hey, language keeps breaking down. I wanted to say I haven't practiced in this way myself, but of course, it's not a practice. You go, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about practice and non-practice, um, which actually is is itself um, a bit of a marker of the Kamakura era schools um, is sort of coming to the end of the idea of in intentional practice and, and we're doing something, but it's not necessarily practice. But <laughs> putting that aside, what is it like? Uh, what is it like to put oneself in relationship to Amida, to the vow, um, to what Shinran brings to life? Mm. I mean, I think it's probably different for, for different people, isn't it? Um, but I think what it means to me is uh, to try and open up to something that I don't know, that I don't fully know. Uh, and I think it also means to give up the hope of fully grasping what I'm trying to understand, um, that you know, I won't reach a point where I'll fully grasp what it is that I'm trying to understand. So uh, that brings with it, I think, a certain calm, if you like, uh, and can allow me to let go of a certain acquisitive uh, approach, if you like, to, uh, to practice or to the Dharma, because uh, I can give up the idea that at some point I'll have understood it completely, if you like. I'll, I'll be fully, you know, fully in charge of it all. Um, I think another thing that I would say um, is that at least at times – uh, a sense of gratitude and confidence, because if you if you kind of think in terms of the the myth, the myth of Amida, what's being said in the myth is that this incredibly compassionate and wise uh, being ha is is gifting you what they are, is gifting you their mind, uh, or in some ways you could say we could say has already done that. Uh, and we're in the process of waking up to what that means. 
So there's something quite uh, affirming about that, although uh, it, it's always important to remember as well that Shinran constantly emphasizes that even while we're the recipients of Amida's wisdom and compassion, um, we're also ignorant beings. And so I'm very, very interested in that sort of dual reality or that, that paradox where uh, there's a way in which, if you like, we're, we're awakening to the true nature of things, we're awakening to wisdom and compassion, but a dimension of that is a constant um, awakening to our own ignorance and limitations, uh, and both of those things are there at the same time. Uh, that so that's what's intriguing for me. So there's no danger. I, well, there shouldn't be uh, a danger of becoming smug about it all. Uh, but equally, uh, there shouldn't be the danger of just becoming kind of depressed and feeling hopeless. Um, uh, obviously, those are dangers. But I think the way that Shinran's thinking works is to try and uh, uh, is to try and address those things. And so, if we're constantly remembering. Uh, the, the the gift of Amida, if you like, the gift uh, of Amida's wisdom and compassion, then that's very encouraging. And if we can remember at the same time our own ignorance, then that's going to stop us falling into some kind of spiritual arrogance and superiority. I had a, a I think I said this in, um, I wrote a little newsletter piece to introduce your book uh, in the sponsorship. And one of the things I realized when I was writing that, in just encountering what you were writing <laughs> and, and sort of being a little bit immersed in the world of your book for a while, um, for me, the effect of what you're talking about is that paradox, being open to something beyond a limited self and appropriation of the self. And on the other hand, um, uh, this this non non striving it's not about mastery you know so so much of the the metaphor um uh either in terms of sort of mindfulness awareness mastery of one's awareness in the sort of early buddhism and i'm also thinking even in terms of the sort of more yogic approaches which might also be engaged with images and visualizations and and other in rituals and puja and prostration practice and all sorts of other things that are also um explicitly in connection with something beyond and a and and a a metaphor and a language of beyond you still have this root metaphor of mastery in it and one of the things that happened just in reading your book for me was a, a considerable softening about the fact that we're all a bit sort of bruised and hapless and um, that all of us live with this dissonance between our, an ideal and um, and actually what life is like because we live in the kinds of bodies we do and we have the minds that we do and that we're uh, in relationships that can um bump up against each other as well as, you know, uh, transport us. I found that just a, a, a sort of almost a <laughs> like I was a secondary smoker. I was a secondary Shinran <laughs> recipient of Shinran's grace. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a really uh, fantastic insight that you just uh, offered there. Um, and I think what I'd say in response is that uh, I wouldn't want to say that uh, all language of effort is out of place. Uh, and I think I would also say that uh, the, the, the vision that Shinran opens out is 
is quite likely to be a bit confusing to someone who's made no effort to practice. Um, uh, and uh, it, re- it reminds me actually of, a, of something that Sangharakshita once said, uh, which was that he believed that the, the Pure Land approach uh, to practice is actually an advanced path, uh, not a path, not an introductory path, whereas it's commonly thought to be the opposite. In other words, it's commonly thought as a quite a simple approach, if you like, of faith. Uh, and then, uh, you know, there are other more sophisticated approaches. And I think it, it's I think because we can readily misunderstand what what's being talked about in terms of effort and abandoning self-effort. Uh, I think it's quite difficult to, to grasp what that's driving at. Uh, but the other thing that I wanted to say was that uh, practicing is good. Uh, it's good to practice. Uh, the question is, why are we practicing, uh, really? Um, and I think uh, when we're, I, I think there are dangers in thinking that I'm practicing in order to, to arrive. You know, I'm practicing in order to, if you like, and seeing practice as instrumental uh, as a step on the way to getting somewhere. You know, again, that has its value. I don't want to completely dismiss it. But I think as time goes on, I think that way of seeing things does start to show its limitations and can become uh, an obstacle. Uh, and I was remembering that um, Shinran's principal work is called the Kyogyo Shinsho. Uh, Gyo in that phrase is usually translated as practice. But uh, D.T. Suzuki, who actually made a translation of, of the Kyogyo Shinsho, he translates Gyo as living rather than practice. And I think this is very interesting. Uh, so it's about living rather than practicing. In other words, it's, it's just how you live. Uh, practice, I think, sometimes can imply something very uh, pragmatic and trying to get somewhere, you know, practicing in order to, in other words, whereas living is just your life. And so, you know, to do pujas, I think, is great. We can just do them because, well, it's great to do pujas, isn't it? And we don't necessarily have to think that there'll be some product, you know, that well, or some, 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 uh, fruit that we'll get at the end of it, just doing it in itself is the fruit. Uh, and I, I think this is a lot of what um, Shinran is is trying to get us to see, that, that actually the practice itself is the fruit, uh, rather than thinking that there's something at the end of practice that you will get because you have practiced. In some ways, and this is a bit ironic, doesn't seem to me to be uh, that far away, as I do mention in the book, from uh, from Dogen's vision. Uh, you know, Dogen talks about practice as enlightenment or, or zazen as enlightenment, um, which means to say that awakening means nothing apart from practice. So, so it's not a, it's not a goal that practice moves towards. Um, it, the, the two are one, really. They're they're not different from one another. And there's something very intriguing in that for me. Uh, about um, bringing uh, uh, bringing the, the, the goal uh, or identifying the goal with practice itself and not seeing it as something that results from practice. Because then that means that actually practice is really valuable because that, that's where it's all happening, if you like. It's all happening right now. It's not that I do something now so that something else will happen in the future. The interesting stuff, if you like, is happening right now, and it's only ever going to be happening right now. So it it really uh, invites us, I think, to really pay attention 
uh, to what's going on right now uh, and not to be perhaps so future oriented um, in terms of what we're doing. So I want to ask you one last question. Um, uh, I'm hoping that um, people listening to this will be interested um, in finding out more, you know, each of these sort of areas that we've touched on in a way is, is explored in quite a lot of uh, depth um, in your book. And, and I'd also say it's explored in two different ways. You, you're, you're like you are in the interview now. There's a kind of uh, intellectual understanding and attention to how things are framed um, and what's the view inherent in something. And there's also this thread of tenderness and receptivity and love and imagination and um, openness. Um, so it's really interesting in a book that you you also manage to do both, like partly through your own story and partly because of the um, sensitivity in the poetry, the language, the, the your own responsiveness to that that um, the beauty of the, some of those images and metaphors and the the existential and the tenderness to the existential condition that we are in that we that we strive and that it's all already here. Um, but I wonder if we'd like to end the discussion today by just saying what what is the promise of the sacred world? If it's not something in the future, what is the promise of the sacred world that you've called your book? Hmm. Um, yeah, well, I'm very interested in the, in the idea of, uh, uh, of promise uh, because, uh, I mean, what is a promise? It's quite mysterious. Uh, it, it seems to be something that reaches between the present and the future and, uh, and collapses the distance. Um, so a word that I use uh, quite a lot in the book or sometimes is uh, proleptic uh, and prolepsis is when you talk about something uh, that hasn't happened as though it has already happened. And it's quite an interesting literary device because, as I, as I just said, it kind of breaks down the distance uh, between the present and the future. Uh, and that, that, to me, is how a promise works. It's like connecting uh, the present with the future. So, that, so the promise of the sacred world, first of all, is Amida's promise, really, um, and that's me translating uh, vow as promise. So uh, Amida promised to the whole universe uh, to create this uh, pure land, to create this, uh, the, this, this perfect environment in which we can uh, all be reborn. Uh, and uh, so that he promised that. Um, and we have the promise of that. In other words, that's a possibility for us. Um, it's in the, it's in, it's, it's within our possibilities to connect with that. Um, um, but I'm not necessarily thinking that the sacred world is somewhere in the future. Um, uh, uh, so the promise of the sacred world is actually a promise that is available right now. Um, and the phrase, the sacred world is a, is a way of trying to uh, articulate uh, the possibility of our awakening to our existential condition and the, and the deepest meaning of our lives right now. Uh, and that's always possible. Uh, and we can always be opening up to that, always be uh, awakening to that, not as somewhere distant in the future, but as something that's unfolding for us right now. Um, so that's the promise of a sacred world. 
very cool. <laughs> I, I mean that in a strictly technical way. No, thank you. That's it's lovely. I've I've really enjoyed the conversation and knowing uh, because I've read your book quite a few times. I know the richness behind the answers that you're giving, and I really hope other people will um, enjoy it, feel opened by it, be be changed. Uh, shift their understanding in in their engagement with your book is there anything else that you'd like to say um there might be i mean first of all i'd i'll say that you've done a brilliant job today and i've really been engaged by your own reflections and thoughts uh, which i personally think have been a lot more interesting than mine but uh uh anyway uh, so that's been really really good um uh, well, I'd be interested to just talk a little bit about hermeneutics uh, because you, you touched on the idea uh, that in the book I'm both trying to um, explore or clarify certain ideas and teachings at the conceptual level, but also trying to engage with them uh, in an existential kind of way and not, not to just see them as distant and cold, but as something that have uh, value and meaning for for my life and and the lives of others, and uh, I don't know if I've actually coined this phrase, but the phrase um, existential hermeneutics is a way to talk about what I'm trying to do in the book. So so more generally, uh, hermeneutics is about interpretation. It's about how we come to understand uh, material uh, could be material from the past, such as texts or culture. Um, in this case, the ideas, the ideas of Shinran. But it's also very alive to the interpretive assumptions that we bring uh, to what we're trying to understand. So it's a kind of constantly self-reflective way of trying to understand something. Uh, that's what hermeneutics is. And um, uh, some uh, philosophers talk about an endless hermeneutics, that there's, you, you can never come to an end of it because there's no point at which you'll come to a final grasp of anything uh, because it's a constant process of uh, reflection and understanding which is something that really appeals to me uh, but particularly in the book as well I wanted to bring in or, or make clear if you like how this process of, uh, of reflecting on uh, Shinran's ideas and Pure Land was actually connected to my own existence you know my own personal life and so uh, I think there's quite a lot of confession there, quite a lot of revelation. But what's interesting about that as well is that Shinran does exactly the same. Uh, Shinran does this, which is quite unusual, I think, uh, in a, a Buddhist teacher, particularly from that period. So most of his work uh, is about uh, using scriptural quotations and offering little commentaries and so on. But every now and again, uh, you get these sort of egg, what I call existential outbursts where he just suddenly confesses something about his own failings uh, or, or, you know, reveals something about his connection to, to Amitabha or Honen. And it's really uh, quite striking, that, that combination uh, of this sort of existential revelation on the one hand and then the exploration of the, the Dharma ideas, the Dharma material on the other. So uh, in, in some ways in the book, I'm just trying to take a leaf out of uh, Shinran's own approach, you know, which was very much to sort of own his own 
uh, existential situation in relationship to what he was trying to talk about. You know, he never, he, he doesn't talk in a really distanced way. He talks in a very personal way about how he stands in relationship to uh, the, the Buddhist tradition, the, the ideas and practices that he's trying to unfold. Yeah, you talk about reading as a transformative uh, experience or activity. And um, I think your book both shows how to do that, but also it's an account of of that process for you and your engagement with Shinran, which is, I think, one of the things that makes the book so very good. I can say that. You you can't say that, but I can say the book is very good. <laughs> yeah, well, any any encounter with something other is potentially transformative. And, you know, going back to the idea of other power, obviously I was talking before in terms of Amitabha, but we I could think of you as other power. You know, you were other power to me. And, and so what that means is that my encounter with you is impinging on my sense of who I am, uh, my sense of what it means to be me. Uh, and we can extend that to other things like a book. Uh, you know, at the encounter with a book, uh, the book, uh, at least initially, is other and can be activated as other power if we're uh, receptive to what the book is is going to uh, stimulate in us, is going to invoke in us. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's important to be alive to the transformative possibilities that there are in reading, uh, in human encounter, uh, rather than just thinking that, say, through reading, I just learn something to add on to myself. Um, or, you know, through talking to someone, I learn something new to add on to myself. Rather than thinking in those terms, actually, the encounter is a way of becoming transformed, becoming renewed, you know, through the encounter with the book or with the other person. Yeah. And that's also a very alive way of engaging with life and our lives, that that we are open to the possibility that anything we encounter, we won't walk away unchanged. They, you know, the, the person who walks away is different from the one who engages in that encounter. Um, it reminded me of an IQ poem, and I was just trying to look it up, but I can't find it. But I will put it. Uh, I will send it to you, and I'll put it. I'll put the text um, uh, next to with the words of the podcast, so that we, we could have that it. as an epilogue. Yeah, I'm, a little I'm epilogue. Excited. I'm excited yeah. about it already. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, the fact that we're potentially transformed by everything we encounter is an invitation to consider what we expose ourselves to, um, really. Um, I mean, this is a, a general Buddhist reflection about interconnection and uh, uh, conditionality. Um, and so, um, yeah, it invites us, because of the fact that we're not these kind of separate concrete blocks that don't, you know, have anything to do with one another, we're actually uh, interconnected. It, it, it makes it more important that we think carefully about what what influences, if you like, we're exposing ourselves to, at least to the extent that we've got any choice about that. Uh, and, uh, you know, what what forms of other power, if you like, what things outside ourselves we're, we're allowing to impinge on us and, and influence us. I'm going to allow our listeners to stretch their legs and and get a cup of tea and call this to a close now. <laughs> Though it does make me think um, that, I'm, well, I'm looking forward to uh, the interviews that you will do in the book launch as well. And perhaps sometime after the book's been around for a while, we can we can revisit some of these conversations when more people have uh, 
have read it. But congratulations on the book. And uh, I hope that it's also uh, an interesting process for you when the book comes out. You'll have lots more people to speak to about these things than you might have before. Well, I mean, thanks very much for showing interest in the book and agreeing to publish it. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. My and our pleasure. All right. Thank you very, very much, Nagapriya. It's been very, very good to speak with you and uh, look forward to hearing more from you when the book is out. Mm, thank you. It's been great. Windhorse Publications is part of the Tree Ratna Buddhist community. And this podcast is sponsored by Future Dharma Fund a Buddhist fundraising charity which helps fund Dharma projects across the world, including ours. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to them to help them fund current and future projects like ours. You can find out more about Windhorse Publications by going to our website.